0: This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com, A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Cherayu Wake, partner from C++, and in the first part of our conversation, we discuss the venture capital landscape and the major trends in smartphone, internet of things, and autonomous vehicles across Asia-Pacific. Hi Cherayu. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Very well. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: You're in the C++ office in Singapore? That's right. Yeah. And send my regards to Smitty and Tian. but today I have Charayu Wake, partner from Seed Plus. I know he's very focused on a very interesting category of internet of things and mobility. Since you are here, and we have been talking a lot about all the different interesting topics, whether it's mobility, IoT landscape, and even the recent Broadcom and Qualcomm deal that fell apart. So, before we get into all those subjects of the day, I want to try to get to know you better. How do you start your career?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I actually started my career hoping I would join a phone company called Nokia, but it did not happen. I landed up joining Accenture because actually interestingly, Nokia decided they did not want to hire me. This was in two thousand six, an interesting time when Nokia was probably at the peak. So I got into consulting and got into technology consulting. And you know, this was the communications, high tech consulting at Accenture and I did that for a bit and you know before I knew it uh, consulting had had become boring and you know I had joined a massive telco from the US that wanted to set up some interesting scouting office in in Asia. So that's how I my first few years that was spent if I may in terms of you know how I got my career started. And
0: then subsequently where do you go to and how do you get your
1: current role then? Yeah. So I think after that, what happened is, you know, when I was scouting for Verizon Wireless, the carrier that I joined, I realized that uh, there's a lot happening, but it was too early. And, you know, this is sort of on the borderline of iPhone just being launched and still sort of predominantly dominated by the pre-iPhone ecosystem or, you know, just the chaos that was. The ideas that were floating around in markets like Asia was still sort of not there in terms of what they had to bring to Verizon Wireless for example so i decided to pack my bags and go to the us this was you know on behest of an interesting project that uh, was tossed in my direction was to put together a jv between at&t t-mobile and Verizon Wireless. So I worked on that for a bit, launched what is possibly the first broad-based mobile NFC wallet in the US, and then a bunch of other sort of ancillary payments initiatives at Verizon Wireless. But yeah, that led me to Google that was doing its own wallet initiatives in a slightly different way. And I was attracted by uh, what was happening uh, on the West Coast and decided to join Google and its payments initiatives. So uh, had the opportunity to work on the ecosystem, building out the ecosystem for the mobile wallet, both uh, first two versions of the product and then when it became sort of an api and android the transition to that api was also something i had an opportunity to work on post uh, working on that stuff i actually looked at uh, a different area within uh, google which was doing wireless and I had another opportunity to launch what i call sort of a game-changing product or category if i may which was changing the existing routing infrastructure in people's homes and you know that was a phenomenal experience in sort of Taking a concept that was literally a you know system on chip, and then building a whole ecosystem of uh, you know the product and distribution channel as well as branding around it. So that's apparently doing well now. that's what I hear. So yeah. So worked on primarily on those two projects, and then towards the end, you know, I I worked on something interesting. I was working on YouTube and did uh, some work around caching YouTube in emerging markets, and we were sort of doing caching using satellite communication. To the edge of networks, uh, and we started out with Wi-Fi, and then I also had the opportunity to work on the Google Wi-Fi stuff that was happening in India. So all the railway stations were getting wired up for six Mbps up or you know down, the kind of speeds that you know pre-sort of Reliance G over unheard of. Yeah, so that kind of triggered a thought that hey, there's a significant change happening in Asia. The amount of, you know, mobile handsets that we were talking about had completely changed. The quality of those handsets had gone up and businesses that we initially thought were hard to sort of make work are possibly there for the taking and accelerating. And that triggered a thought of, you know, coming back and figuring out if there was a place I could literally get on the ground floor and, you know, make uh, some of these ideas come to reality. So, you know, I knew the Jungle Ventures guys for a while and they said, you know, they they had a thought of putting together a seed fund and that's how I kind of decided to join Smitty, Tiang and Gabriel and made my way back in some sense to Singapore. So
0: you have a pretty interesting career. You went from consulting, you went to Google and then now you're a venture capitalist.
1: Yeah, there's only one other person that's actually pointed that out to me, believe it or not. And they said, you've done consulting, you've done operating, and now you're doing investing. So you finished the sort of trifecta right?" Yeah. So we might just try to ask you this then. What
0: are the interesting career lessons that you can share with my audience?
1: So I think, you know, I would say that firstly, the thing that has worked for me is... I always believed in non-incremental changes. So, you know, if I'm working somewhere, I'm working on a project or working in a company, if my next thing has to be substantive and different, and it has to add an element to myself as a person that I did not have before. So an example would be jumping from consulting to doing sort of scouting for a carrier. I hadn't done scouting, but, you know, that didn't sort of bother me necessarily. And then I went to the U.S. with the carrier. Then Google came knocking on my door and in between I had even toyed with the startup that got very well funded, actually, I still hold founding shares in that startup. So it was a brief six to eight month period when I actually toyed with the startup, then I got into Google. So again, I mean, there was no plan. But the idea was that every change has to be 10x in some sense, over the previous in terms of learning, and eventually, hopefully, accomplishments will follow. So that's the model that I've consistently used for, you know, for making decisions on what happens next.
0: I'm always very curious when I have venture capitalists on my show, I always ask them this question, can you talk about what is your normal day like as a venture capitalist? this
1: the thing that i would call out is it's a very event-driven job so you know because uh, deal flow that comes in is not uh, consistent it's uh it's very up and down so people typically like to put a process around it but the reality is that, you know, this is a very event-driven thing. You might find a company that's exciting and suddenly you have three that are exciting and you suddenly are sort of completely booked. Or, But in a typical day, you know, it would be a combination of spending time on new deals that have come through, spending time on due diligence that we already have in the pipeline. And then lastly, but very importantly, spending, and this changes as the fund becomes more mature, is uh, spending as much time as possible with, with our portfolio companies. And, you know, as we walk through the life cycle of a fund, the time we spend with portfolio companies goes up. That's typically sort of a day life of a VC.
0: So what's your current role and coverage within C++? I, I think the question for me to ask is, do you have like an investment thesis or there is a category that you're focused on?
1: Yeah, so the investment thesis broadly is I'm doing connected devices, IoT, mobility from a transport standpoint and then you know other hardware technology that may or may not be related to you know any of this other stuff but that's really broadly my mandate that I cover and the region that I've typically sort of looked at has been broader Asia Pacific so you know everything that goes from India all the way to Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, Southeast Asia of course but also stuff that occasionally sort of comes out of Shenzhen that's looking for dollar investments versus RMB I mean they, they tend to sort of find their way out. This has been sort of the combination of my existence in some sense over the last one and a half year.
0: So any interesting companies that you have invested within your portfolio? I know that all venture capitalists like to talk about, they don't want to name their favorite child. I just thought I want to know like, what are the kind of companies that you have invested so far and can you just name them
1: yeah so i have two in the portfolio right now but i expect to have another one soon so i can't talk about that but i'll talk about the ones that are already there so the first one is a company called cove iot it's sort of building a platform software platform for wearables. And its sort of first uh, target market is luxury watches. So they figured out quickly that Android Wear had its own challenges in terms of scaling in the branded ecosystem because of you know they literally sort of equalize everybody's differentiation and that was not acceptable to a lot of the brands these guys come from nokia they're based out of uh, singapore office uh, offices in shenzhen bangalore and geneva we have invested in this company with a swiss uh, design house which is a strategic what this company does is basically just build a soft software platform and the uh, some of the hardware stuff inside swiss watches so when swiss watches that look analog from the outside, but connect to your phone. That's the technology that they're building. they call called sort of, you know, smart analog in some sense. The brand is still sort of stays with its look and feel, but it can connect to a smartphone and has a ton of sensors inside it. That's what the company is up to. the other one the other one is interesting so you know we invested in a previously sort of uh, successful founder who sold his previous company to walmart the idea was that he was looking for he was a cto of a massive hardware company traditional hardware company that sells point of sale terminals and i think that kind of led him led him to believe that the ecosystem in the iot world is getting increasingly complex the fragmentation is getting to be very complex for facility managers and it managers to keep control of and you know he had some scars to show from managing you know almost a million boss systems that are floating out there and they go down and you know you can't patch them remotely he thought of a software which kind of may help to get around that problem so he's building a company called copper and the first product is sort of an incident management software platform that allows starting with retailers to facilities managers to have a single pane of uh, glass to control a well, not control but to look at incidents across their infrastructure. So in case of a retailer that could be HWAC, POS systems, back end sort of IT stuff inside a store and be able to figure out, hey, the hvac system in aisle number four is not working and you know there's a likelihood that there's dairy stock there and it all might go to waste. So why don't we kind of figure out it's a critical problem? And all this is sort of visually available across different retail locations. So that's sort of the premise of reducing the hardburn that happens when managing complex infrastructure, specifically on the physical side. And that's where the IoT piece comes. So, yeah, so he's, he's based out of the valley, but, you know, we have some projects now running in Singapore as well for him. That's the second company.
0: So I get you today to talk about two major topics because we have private conversations on that recently in a couple of meetups. So one of them is pertaining to the mobility and the internet of things landscape because I think a lot has changed over the last few years. I think we talk about the glorious days of Nokia is over and then now is the duopoly of iOS and Android. Where do you see the mobility landscape evolving and what are the major trends that is coming?
1: So I think, you know, there have been three ecosystems and we are on the verge of the third one, right? I mean, broadly, there's the PC ecosystem that was Vintel dominated. Then the mobile, as you said, the mobile ecosystem. And we are on the verge of, I would say, that the next transition to voice uh, assistance and that ecosystem is completely different. So I would sort of just frame the conversation in that sense that that's the environment that we are operating. Having said that, you know, unlike the previous uh, ecosystems, we haven't seen evidence yet, and, you know, maybe things will change, of mobile phones not being at the center of someone's universe. Not yet, at least. Maybe it'll happen in the future, but we haven't seen people sort of saying they start spending more time on talking to voice assistants to get stuff done versus uh, continue to use their mobile device. So, you know, mobile devices are going to continue to stay, right? And the question is, is that likely to be the control point that it has always been for the last 10 years. And where I see this going is, I think the fragmentation on Android is is a concern for sure. I think Apple's kind of not... Ch- been largely unchanged over the past several years in terms of you know what it believes in. But I think what's happened on the Android side is that as this market has grown, it has introduced more variations than what's actually might be in favor of uh, the consumer. And experiences are increasingly sort of broken and, and siloed. And Android itself, you know, can be forked in eight different ways and you have different versions of it so i think this fragmentation leads to the question on you know where does this go and you know some attempts were made by andy rubin playground etc to you know answer some of those questions and there have been others like xiaomi that have been trying to answer that question but the reality is that the way this works is the value is in the services layer and if you're able to sort of tie up the services layer in a neat way you have to have a lot of influence and control over the rest of the ecosystem because i don't think it's hard today to take off-the-shelf operating system and make it reliable. I think that science has, it's a science now. It doesn't need more innovation. I think the question becomes, are the services valuable enough to actually walk away from, say, Google? I hadn't seen anything for a long time in terms of disrupting that other than China that openly just blocks Google. So state sort of getting in the way of, in some sense, of success. But other than that, you know, if I were to sort of think about a ground-up methodology of tackling this, you know, I saw some interesting Stuff going on in India and that kind of triggered the thought, right? So Geo launched uh, last year and then it's, it's on a tear ever since and it's got 100 plus million users and, you know, it's got, uh, it acquired or semi acquired Savan, I mean, which is a music app and it's looking at other applications. And one of the thought that came to me was, you know, if it, can, if it has the eyeballs, it does, and it gets the applications that are popular, like a hot star or maybe some of the others. It's possible that you might create a bundle that includes, say, a Facebook through WhatsApp, or, but doesn't include Google. And then at that point, you know, the question becomes if you have an alternative payment paying mechanism that doesn't include a Google Play or and it, it's possibly a Paytm or whatever that may be. Theoretically, is it possible to actually create another ecosystem? right? And it's kind of taking the carrier, taking revenge against the tech companies right but that's some of the thinking that i had that you know if reliance creates that playbook it's possible that because of its 100 million plus consumer base that it actually controls the consumer base and it can do this and and it's thinking about application the right way like almost like a non-carrier but the challenge is to be honest uh, cultural right i mean uh, the, the reality is that google and android became so successful was not because of Smart strategies alone, but the APIs, the engineering that goes into, you know, if you look at the Android software, the way it's coded, you know, it's so well written in Java. You know, some of those techniques in terms of not having technical debt on the engineering side and being able to build APIs and integrations that are seamless is a non-trivial thing to achieve at scale right? So while, you know, carriers have demonstrated or rather one carrier has demonstrated some success, you know, I I often believe that cultural renaissance is the one that comes in the way of ultimate success. And I don't know if Reliance or any other carrier in the world has that. So I think the jury is out there. I'm not quite sure. You know, it may be a one-off that Reliance is successful for a brief period, but I believe to create an operating system and a platform needs completely different thinking. And I'm not sure. I'm really not sure if a carrier has that thought process.
0: I'm interested to follow up on the conversation you mentioned, Reliance Joe in India, which came up with a very interesting business model by offering first for free and then subsequently start charging users on services. And you also see the same with Xiaomi in China, but I think they have evolved given their pending IPO that's coming in the next under two months. They have started in the services, but they also dive deep a little bit in the hardware. I think what is interesting to me now is, do you believe that cultural factors is the only thing that will drive growth of the emerging markets for mobile itself?
1: no i mean i think the ability to create a platform is what you know is a function of the culture but i think what's what reliance has adequately demonstrated is if you provide the connectivity and provide it at a cost that's acceptable you can have 70 80 conversion rates to paid and that's what they've demonstrated apparently so you know they gave the whole thing free but they charge for the hardware and you know they kind of amortize that cost across the life of the subscriber but they were able to get a whole bunch of subscribers to start using services so my sense is and I think same with Xiaomi, right? My sense is that the ability to convert from free to paid is not like what is globally an average, right? Where it needs one percent, and for say for Dropbox, it's like three or four percent, maybe. I think the difference here is I don't think the customers who are using this have ever used data before and they haven't we take for granted and i think what happens is when they do that they get hooked on and, and uh, they're ready to pay because they see value beyond just messaging i think that's what is happening and you know china's probably more advanced where xiaomi has gone beyond just phones right it's it's an entire iot ecosystem that they've built around xiaomi so it's it's an interesting play
0: i think that there's another interesting thing that came out from the Reliance Joe model is that they discovered that the average usage giving an Indian customer free is about 29 gigabytes of data. And what happens is that now it's precolating across Asia Pacific with telcos giving data plans that is about 28 to 29 gigabytes as if it is unlimited. So it just taught everybody what is the right model to price and push everybody towards a particular business model.
1: Yeah, I mean, they tested the waters on an asymptotic maximum, right? That, you know, how much can a person use if they watch all the movies possible in a month, right? That's what I think they of proof but but you know that's possible because they had some unique advantages both from a regulatory standpoint as well as from a i think deep pockets do matter right uh, so they had the ability to burn for some time before converting everybody to paid so given that we
0: see wearables and iot hovering around the smartphone ecosystem do you see them as an augmentation to the smartphone or can they be a foreshadow to something that might come up for example we haven't talked about anything in virtual or an augmented reality And we also have devices that are wearable, such as a Google Glass, Apple EarPod. I mean, you talk about sound assistant speakers. You know, so all these things are actually all hovering around, but it seems that a smartphone is still the center of the universe.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, there are two mental models here. One mental model is the wearables, right? Which is I augment myself with stuff with hardware on my body. and That's how kind of life is. The other stuff is, you know, wearables, which I call like just you walk into a room and you have the infrastructure wired up that gives you sort of a voice assistance or maybe something else in the future i really feel that uh, the latter model, mental model is likely to be more successful but i could be wrong you know there are specific use cases of wearables or other sort of hardware that may be useful but if i think about say an ar headset or just wearing sort of a, a hollow lens or something like that i think the technology is still far away from being a serious sort of uh, mainstream item inherently you know i uh, if you think about it i rather rather ha- not have something that i need to wear all the time or on me than If the option exists, right. So I think where I stand is, I'm I'm squarely sort of saying that I think the world will move to an environment where the infrastructure you walk in will respond to your presence and therefore offer you services, versus sort of you wearing something to necessary to augment your environment. Then this comes to the hardware part,
0: right? You now see Google and Apple building their own semiconductor chips, focusing on the AI processing and what's happening, it seems to be that we have this basically client and server side type of strategy. It used to be everything is deployed from the cloud. Now everything is going back to the services is deployed within the device itself. This paradigm will keep changing depending on when and where the flavor of the month goes. Do you see this would have an impact in terms of the semiconductor industry moving in a different direction or do you just see that this is just a temporal? Because we discussed this to quite a lot of the details with regards to the broadcom Qualcomm deal during our meetup. So before that I thought I should just ask this question to see what you what are your thoughts on that.
1: So you know I think the silicon industry is interesting that uh you know, if any new category is created, they make a lot of profits before being completely commoditized, right? So, if you look at the PC industry or the smartphone industry, the smartphone industry specifically, uh, there was the we are enjoying the dividends of what the smartphone wars, if I may. I think what that did was put a lot of pressure because of the volumes on silicon companies to lower prices to the point where they became extremely uncompetitive on their own as small companies and decided to merge into larger ones. Right? You know, effectively, what used to be a build versus buy decision for a or the larger firms became a build decision and because a the silicon companies were not innovating ahead of the curve it was rather you know top-down innovation that was starting on the software layer side and driving the demand for more powerful chips and therefore the silicon industry was almost sort of reacting to the requirements that google or apple would give them inherently what that does is when google thinks or apple thinks about building something new it is and when it goes out into the market the likelihood that someone's actually building something with those specs is very low like you know, what used to happen before where the silicon industry had a little more power in the value chain, the smartphone wars and price erosion had let their investment appetite to be extremely low. So they wouldn't invest in something that had no sales or hope of sales in the near future. And therefore, you know, you're seeing what you are because a lot of what uh, Apple and Google have started believing is that, it might be useful to actually vertically, vertically integrate and optimize performance right down to the silicon versus having to deal with silicon providers coming and saying they need to sort of coming in to pitch a custom chip that's typically very expensive and they don't have control over it and they don't get the quality of service that they need because, you know, the moment it's a custom chip, the company will charge them a lot of money and, you know, then look to sort of take that custom chip over time and make it more mainstream. So the vendor ecosystem was damaged in some sense by the Googles, Apples, and, you know, the I wouldn't say damaged, but, you know, it was just the nature of the beast of this being a uh, very large market that led to price pressure on Silicon companies that led their investment appetite to zero so therefore you see what you do and i don't think it's going back and forth i think it's just reacting to the market i mean i can tell you in another situation for example if you look at the self driving car industry for example nvidia uh, is charging at tu- you know a bomb for It's chipsets, it's uh, SOCs and and it's GPUs. So it's not unheard of when an industry is new and the silicon company actually is the bottleneck and charges a ton of money. But over time, you know, competition catches up, prices go down and and so on and so forth with volume. I would say that there are categories where Google and Apple are likely to build their own, but there might be stuff where they are likely to look at the future, uh, at, at the environment, for example, right? I mean, even if I look at stuff like sensors, right? Radars, for example. When Google started its self-driving car program, or even the other, you know, GM started its program, I don't believe the radars were even there. The, The quality of the radars or the kind of resolution that these companies needed. And therefore, a lot of these companies landed up building their own. That seems to be sort of a pattern in this, right? Which is when you're ahead of the game and you're innovating, you know, you tend to sort of have to build your own in some sense.
0: My last question before we take the break. You have been looking a lot in the Internet of Things space or what we call the IoT space now. And you also talk about looking into the transportation space. I would presume that mainly will be in self-driving cars or even drones as such. Where do you see for the trend lines in that part of it? I call that connected transportation. Because it used to be bits shifting bits. Now it's bits shifting atoms. So where do you see that space moving as well?
1: So you're trying to understand this question. This is around drones or is it around... Mobility in general and
0: connected. Maybe it's actually mobility in general. A lot of people like to separate it out, but to me, they're doing the same thing. When people talk about drones, the aviation problem is already solved, right? What is not solved is the network, the cybersecurity problem. To me, the self-driving car problem is not about driving. The driving problem is already solved. What the people are solving now is whether to get it to move autonomously from point A to point B using networks and cybersecurity as well. To me, they fall within that same category. So when I think about IoT, it's about trying to put the sensors around them, trying to make them work better to be more efficient in personal mobility. Or even it could be a good mobility when you talk about bus as well.
1: You know, if you ask me about the trends, I think we have a thesis around mobility. And that's divided into, you know, some pieces. I mean, one is obviously infrastructure for self-driving cars. And we've seen some stuff around sensors, around LiDAR sensors, around radar. The other piece is, as you mentioned, is security and privacy. And what happens when these vehicles become, in some sense, start capturing a lot of data? How do you kind of ensure, A, they're not hacked and B, you know, the data is secure? And lastly, I think we've also looked at logistics. And there's a lot of play happening in connected logistics. And our worldview is there's a lot going on, but I don't think anybody's sort of squarely solving the problem beyond just creating SaaS infrastructure structure. So software as a service using some pieces of hardware that are connected to the vehicle. I don't think people have gone beyond that in some sense. We fall squarely in those three buckets. And the one that's uh, that's most interesting to us is honestly on the security side of the house for vehicles, because we think it's an untapped area. It's underinvested as well. There's not too much of investment that's actually gone into figuring out how security companies would actually address that challenge. And I'm really not sure it's a product idea there. I mean, I've always said that it's a product idea, but there could be a services play there where a services company actually audits and validates the security of the software created by multiple OEMs, right? So I don't know. I mean, I I don't know what the hypotheses there could be, but getting into the OEMs or the self-driving world with a product and saying, I'm going to sort of sit inside your uh, software and... You know, give you sort of additional features, or give the consumer more features. Is that's going to be an interesting paradigm if it does happen?s Would love to know. You know, if there are other other approaches that you've seen, perhaps I don't know. But we think of our worldview that way, and for us, security is is the most interesting amongst the three problems.
0: And is that if you want to get into this space for because these are mainly embedded technologies, the services model would be where you should start off, and then you try to decouple more and more so that you can get into the system itself. So, for example, if you think about drones, you'll probably think about inspections as a service, but you move closer and closer to the hardware and the software integration side. That's how I'm thinking about the space in general.
1: With the way I think about it, you know, increasingly, uh, you know, the data suggests that product security companies are, are becoming harder and you know, services companies are... Actually making more money or security services is actually a larger, a much larger industry than or rather revenue than product. So in this case, actually, the, the two trends come together and I'm saying, you know, maybe there's an answer here where you are like almost like a mechanic, right? Or a mechanics shop or a, uh, you know, auto repair shop that existed in 50 years ago where vehicles would sort of be repaired and here's an equivalent of that where you're a services company that makes sure everything the quality is good before the software shift on the device i don't know i I, i'm kind of uh, open about new ideas in this space
0: we will take a break now and then we'll come back and we'll talk about why the broadcom and qualcomm deal fell apart okay